Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another Romeo Carey podcast. Today, I've got uh, another archive select. This dates back to 2000, I think it was January 2000. And it was with uh, a documentary regarding Timothy Carey and uh, the world's greatest sinner, the movie uh, from the pioneering filmmaker, Timothy Carey. Filmmaker that, you know, this really put him on the map. This distinguished him as a, a real formidable figure in independent film. And uh, this film was uh, edited by none other than Carl Mahakian. And Carl Mahakian had a very interesting background. He was born in 1926 in uh, San Francisco. And uh, he did a lot of, worked in a lot of films. Kind of his standouts were something after he worked on The World's Greatest Sinner, he went directly to The Manchurian Candidate, 1962. And then he worked in Miami Vice, uh, 1984, Joe versus the Volcano in 1990. And then he did a slew of television films. Uh, he was uh, really a big, uh, big winner of, you know, primetime creative Emmy. He's won the, I think, two-time Emmy winner for Outstanding Editing. Uh, he's uh, buried in the... Uh, he was a colonel in the Marines, so he's buried in Arlington, Arlington Cemetery in Virginia. He was a, a colonel. He served in World War I, the Korean War, Vietnam War, uh, and the, you know, the Cold War. And between that, he received a BA degree from USC. He worked in television, broadcasting, motion pictures, and he was a you know, ultimately, he became a post-production coordinator, supervisor, film editor, and uh, his career spanned, I mean, from television, he did things such as The Odd Couple, The Brady Bunch, uh, and then films, like I mentioned, major films, he did Rebel Without a Cause with James Dean, and West Side Story, um, he was awarded the Golden Reel Award and, and two Emmys. And I caught up with him in 2000 to give me his, uh, his memories of working on the film. And, you know, I got, I got his uh, life on, you know, on video and on audio, which was, uh, you know, no one ever recorded it. I'm the only person to ever record his kind of life history. He was, uh, at this recording, there was, I should acknowledge, my assistant uh, and his wife. His wife's name, uh, if I recall, his wife's name was, uh, was his wife's name? Patricia Wall, I'm pretty sure it was. Patricia Wall. Yeah, I think it was Patricia Wall. And uh, I had my assistant, Byron Yost, who unfortunately is no longer 
is no longer with us. And Carl passed away in 2015. I mean, he had open heart surgery at the time when I was interviewing him. So he went a good uh, 15 years beyond that. His wife was named Catherine Wall. So here we go. A really, a, someone goes back, you know, literally, a, you know, a hundred years. This is uh, Carl Mahakian, Hollywood editor, talking about his life and working on the Timothy Carey film, The World's Greatest Sinner. And with that, we'll take it away. So I would get it back and I would recut it and put Jack in it. Oh, wow. See? Yeah. Mostly on my own. I have my own notes. You worked on Love American Style, too. Yeah, that I worked on that initially, on that. Oh. So I would get it back and I would recut it and put Jack in it. Oh, wow. See? Yeah. Mostly on my own. I have my own notes. You worked on Love American Style, too. Yeah, that I worked on that initially, on that in movies. Oh, wow. And I got out of the cutting cool. room quite a bit, you know. You are you supervising? You were you were actually cutting. You were actually the cutting. Running around and cutting, and uh, I was doing all kinds of things. Okay. Whatever, oh, whatever great. they didn't know, I would do. That's a great gig. One time, the production manager came to me. Oh, and says, "We, you and I, are producing the show. Oh. Nobody else knows oh. what they're doing." Look what just yeah. Uh oh. Did you say anything derogatory about Tim Carey? <laughs> Isn't that something? I did bump it. I may have been the cause. I I touched it off. I could have. Um, I could have. Um, yeah. Now it looks like it's it's got yeah. a it's got a thing that holds it. It's gonna take a little screwing in. I'm sure you can take a look at that after. Um, that's the progression. But how did you get started on? Um, how did you get started on? Uh, uh, what was it? West Side Story. Is that West Side Story your first? West Side. Wasn't my first. That was my first film. Oh, it wasn't. That's where my dad ran into you. They hired me because they had a guy on there for two weeks and he, he didn't know what he was doing as a sound effects editor. So these two guys, I knew one of them very well, he hired me to come onto it. And I laid out all the sound effects. I ordered them all, some from my, mostly from my library. We went out and made the stuff. And the other two guys were working on dialogue because they were looping a lot. So they did no sound effects. They've got credit on the pictures, sound editors. They did no sound effects. I did. I laid out the material for every reel. I did the hardest reels myself, and then we hired a couple of other guys to come and take my sound effects and synchronize them. Wow. And then I left before the dubbing, when I'd all I had to do was sit around and do nothing. But I left to work on Sinner. Sinner. Bowfinger. All right, can I warm this up? Let's see here. Before I'm actually gonna get the tone and stuff. But, uh, I thought you were recording all that. <laughs> no. See, we started out as sound editors because there was no other way to, to get ahead. We couldn't we couldn't become film editors. We couldn't become assistants. Right. So we ended up in sound effects. And the ones that didn't end up in sound effects, we ended up music editing because that was easy. Yeah. So. And then I got out of it, and I was always getting better. I'm gonna, I'm gonna abuse it over here. Oh, okay. Yeah. Actually, well, I'm, we're going to do a few things. Then I'm going to um, I'm going to show you the. It's just a, about a 19-minute mm -hmm. uh, video on on my dad. Maybe yeah. that'll give you some more ideas. Okay. Um, uh, That's funny. I don't know if there's any particular order to any of this. It's just there, random. Nah, there random isn't. things come out. Yeah, and I've got I've got plenty of tape. 
me see the audio level here. Audio level's good, that's it. Okay, now I bring my headphones. Um, okay. Do I wear my glasses or not? Yeah, I think you'd look better without your glasses. Okay. I think that's going to help you. Good glisten in your eyes. Let's see. Okay. What I, I think we'll start with. Okay. Open all the way up here. Wow. Looks like one of those. Look at the library. <laughs> Great. Um, where where did you where did you first? Uh, <coughs> what's today's date? Today is uh, the thirtieth. Today's January thirtieth. Today's January thirtieth. Two thousand. Two thousand. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> where did you first learn of uh, Tim Carey? And actually, if I ask something, just for just for just because I'm not going to be in this. This is just you. Uh, eh, you don't even have to. Normally, what they say is incorporate the question in the answer. So if I say something. You'll just be you just incorporate the question into the answer. Yeah. So then I'm out of it. Yeah. If I say where'd I meet? Where'd you meet Tim Carey? I met Tim Carey, and that's putting the question into the answer. So then I'm then I don't then you don't need me because I'm not really in this. That way it ties it all together. It just puts the question in your answer. Okay. In five, four, and the first question I'll ask you is, uh, where'd you first learn of him? Hmm. And in five, four. Three, two, one, and rolling. Anytime you're ready, Carl. I'm sure it was probably the movie The Killing, because you'd never forget Tim from that movie when he shot the racehorse. And I had seen, I was seeing films, foreign films, and different films, and uh, and I knew about that film, and that's that's where I first uh, first saw Tim. But it was in a movie. It wasn't real life. What did you What did you think of his uh, What did you think of his uh, performance in uh, Hold on, in the in the killing? Because actually, I think his earliest thing was the wild one. He's in the wild one. What are those? Yeah, I guess. Yeah, I can't remember him in that. I did see the wild one, but I couldn't remember him in the. You wild know what his one. first thing he did? He did a thing called the big. His biggest break was was it was a radio show. Yeah. I think it was for RKO. Mm -hmm. But they just started the brand new series called Gangbusters, oh. and he played this character called something Stinger. Get St that was his big break. He played the bad guy in it. Mm -hmm. But um, okay, so the killing. And where did you actually get the meat? Where, where did you, how did it happen that you met? Well, it must have, somebody must have told him about me. I, I don't know who. Uh, right now, it must. It had to have been at the Samuel Goldwyn Studio. Uh, when I was working on West Side Story, and uh, I wanted to be a film editor, and and I could never get a break, and uh, this was a chance to uh, work on a real film and and to become a film editor, so it was like a a training ground for me, and uh, that's how we connected, and uh, it lasted over a period of two years. Do you remember your first meet? Do you remember your first meeting? Uh, no, I can't. No, okay. I can't. So he he actually he came to visit you over the course of two years. I worked for him over two years. Yeah, on and off. How did he invite? How did he? So you you how did it happen? So you were working on West Side Story, and what? 
How did, how did that go? You finished West Side Story? or I quit West Side Story before the dubbing to go work on, on Tim's film. And uh, I don't know, it, it just looks like an opportunity. He ran, he, ran, uh, he ran some of the footage for me, and it was the footage of the breaking up the Long Beach Auditorium, and I was really impressed with the footage. So I said, this is a terrific film here, and I want to I wanna get with it and, and learn, you know. So uh, I did. I did. What did you, you think of, um, what did you think of just, the, did you, when you first got involved with the, with the, the basic uh, story of it, did you understand the story? Did you know what, do you know what the story was about? Yes, I understood what it was, you know. It was about this, uh, you know, rock and roll character that uh, became a, into religion and very unusual story at the time. Uh, you know, very, very complicated and very, very, very unusual. But uh, did you know it was that taboo? Did you know that what you were doing was going to end up like? I, I, I know I know it was very controversial. It was very unusual with the uh, with the blood and all that stuff and the uh, the wafer all that bit. And when we would screen the film, it was very upsetting to a lot of people, and some of them didn't sleep all night long after seeing it, which kind of shocked me. I didn't realize it was that uh, that uh, powerful, but it was because uh, I'd been with this so long. I guess you know. I still hear the music, that music, uh, The Planets, Gustav Holtz. Every time I hear it, I think of that film. <laughs> now that was, that was the music in, um, that's the music where he plays it, uh, I'm trying to, with Gustav Holtz, that's uh, I don't know if it retained it, stayed in the film or not, but we used that when he was uh, running along the blood, you know. How did you know the melody? The Planets. I must have used it. So I know I know Zappa did a track. It had to it had to have been left in there. Have to have been left. I don't know. We'll have to look, I'll have to we'll have to look at that. Um, what was it? How, how did now? Where did you guys edit? Did you edit? A, where was your we, editing? We edited in El Monte in his. I guess it was a garage. I lived in Montebello, so which wasn't that far from uh, from uh, El Monte. And if, and. Actually, no. I guess we we first we were first editing at KTTV. He had a cutting room there that was probably a film vault, and we were working in there. And I don't know whether I was working on another job at the time or not. I'd come there and work there with Tim, and we had an assistant. Can't remember his name. And uh, one day we came to work, and the assistant had left his undershirt on the on the wall and said I have to leave I can't handle it anymore and the uh, one other occasion the business agent of the union came and wanted to get in pounding on the door saying I know you're in there open the door because we were non-union so which was very upsetting and you know, I'm trying to learn how to be a film editor they're doing everything they can to keep me from being a film editor so I guess from that we moved to El Monte to the house and uh, worked in the garage with the horse and the two dogs and the, the wife and the kids and the, the whole bit. <laughs> Did anything unusual ever happen when it rained? Yeah, 
when it rained, we took the horse into the cutting room. So we had the horse in the cutting room. I don't know if it was any influence, but it was very unusual to have a horse in there. If it wasn't raining, we'd go for a ride on the horse. And Tim would have me get on the back of the horse, and I'd say, take it easy now, Tim. Don't go too fast. And of course, he wouldn't listen to that. He'd go galloping off like a madman, and I'd jump off the horse before it got too bad. But I don't know, we became uh, very close because when you're working with somebody like that, it isn't just work, you know. And, and when we weren't working, we'd go to town, we'd go to, we'd like to go to the thrifty drugstore and walk around and uh, just normal things, two guys, you know. And uh, everywhere we went, somebody knew him. They all recognized him. It was amazing, yeah. 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 He was unique. Yeah. What about uh, what about when he got parts in movies? And you know about that time. When he did? Yeah. Were you ever involved in anything? Did uh, you ever go with him? Have you? Would he have you on? The I would set? go to him to a screening. I went on the set when 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 he was at this one movie. I can't remember what studio it was, but. I think it was a pirate ship, and Tim was there with a big torch, and, and he damn near burned the ship down. Uh, I don't think on purpose, but uh, he was going into his usual act. And then I went to him a couple of screenings, I think, to see films. We did go see, at one point we went to see Cassavetes' uh, film. I can't remember which one it was, but it was. I wasn't impressed with it. I thought it was terrible, and I said, for God's sakes, uh, Let's go to work on your movie. So that got me back working with him again at one period when I had left him. Uh, quite a guy. What about uh, what kind of when he when my dad would get a role? How would he uh, how would he approach it? Just oh well, the one the one time the one time we were really going to make some money and I needed money and. I couldn't support my children and everything working with, you know, for not big salary. We didn't have much money and uh, he had this picture, it was a prison, I think it was a prison picture and he was going up north and uh, I looked at the script and he had made notes all through the script and he was changing lines here and there. I wasn't even on the movie yet. He was changing the whole damn thing and I said, Tim, you know, leave it alone, you know, you're going to mess the whole thing up and that's when... Uh, he went up north and he uh, wanted me to watch uh, Doris and, and the kids and everything and uh, of course I couldn't watch them day and night and he came back and she was gone. He blamed me for them being gone but she wasn't gone for very long. Uh, yeah. Did, uh, did, you, uh, happen to, did you happen upon any, uh, any interesting people while you're with my dad? Yeah, Frank Zappa for one. Whoever knew that he would become what he was because he was very quiet and uh, Tim would bring these people there and, and uh, tell them he was going to make them a star or something. He'd change their names, you know, like Rip Torn and uh, Tab Hunter. Well, he created one character called Tide Rule. I don't remember who he was, but he changed his name to Tide Rule. And he would bring them there and the next thing they'd be... Uh, cleaning up the horse uh, manure or some job like that around the house. 
<laughs> you oh. go from star to shoveling <laughs> shit. Right. <laughs> I never had to do that, at least. Uh, what was uh, what was uh, Frank Zappa like? Very quiet. I, I wasn't impressed with him too much. He was very quiet, you know. Of course, when Tim was around, everybody's quiet, you know. <laughs> what it, do you remember? Do you remember the uh, the occasion when Zappa happened upon just at, towards the end of the movie where he happened to, upon getting on the Steve Allen show? No, I don't remember that. Well, what had happened was he got on the Steve Allen show, and when he got on, he said he did the world's greatest score for the world's worst movie. Oh. And all the actors were from Skid Row. Well, the problem with the movie. And I used to get after Tim for that. Was he surrounded himself with people who didn't know how to act? Maybe thinking that would make him look all the better, which was wrong. He should have had, you know, real fine actors, and and uh, and uh, you know he could hold his own with them. I don't know what he was afraid of. If he was afraid or not. But there, a lot of the characters were, you know, they were nothing. You should have had some a couple of a couple other big stars, but how could you get him to go to El Monte or wherever he was shooting? You know, um, I don't know where he shot. I guess he shot a lot of it there. How about Paul Freeze? Yeah, Freeze. I saw him once. He did. Uh, he did some narration, I guess. Uh, that wasn't a very uh, very pleasant situation, uh, but we got Paul Freeze to do the work. Did he ran into some trouble with Paul Freeze? Yeah, well, a little bit, yeah. Do you, Most, remember, do you remember any details? <laughs> mostly over money and <laughs> getting paid. <laughs> that would have been the case. Tim, uh, Tim, Tim, uh, Tim got everybody to defer. You know, even 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 the lab. I mean, for the film, was it uh, Eastman Kodak? One of them. They even uh, he even owed them money. It was amazing, and they never they never give credit to anybody. And uh, when we were going to dub the picture, I got I arranged to dub it at uh, Sound Service, which later became Todd A.O. And we dubbed it in the best place at the time, as I recall. I think that's where we did it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah there's like five prints in there. Tom Seward. Huh? Really, there's like five prints, and they're really in good shape. Yeah. Um, but the dubbing, I mean, the sound. Well, the sound. You know, blending everything together we did there.
see him walking around the floor. He's the meanest creature you ever seen. He's the world's greatest sinner. He's the world's greatest sinner. As a sinner, he's a winner. I mean, he's no beginner. He's rotten to the core, baby. You can't say no more. He's the world's greatest sinner. That was a world-class place. What was it like cutting the film? Well, I don't know if it was all numbered. Some of it may not have been numbered. Uh, there was there was there was plenty of film to work with, and plenty of good film, <clears throat> and uh, especially the especially the as, as they say the Long Beach. Uh, breaking up the Long Beach Auditorium, which they were supposed to do, but they did. He was going to behave, but they started smashing everything in sight. Got all these students, you know. And then the 5-4 ballroom, the black ballroom on the Central Avenue, where the film goes upside down for a bit during the dance. <clears throat> we went to the 5-4 ballroom after that, Tim and I. And here we are, the only two white guys in the ballroom, you know. And some of them were coming on to me, but Tim told them who I was and to take it easy, you know. But we were there at that 5-4 ballroom on Central Avenue, and that was really interesting. <laughs> the only white guy, or uh, was there a kind of a, uh, uh, you had a, uh, Tim Carey have a formula of how you were going to go about cutting his uh, masterpiece? Well, he, cer he certainly had his own ideas, and I have my own ideas. and. I wasn't to totally, totally. Uh, I never do totally listen to anybody anyway. If they, if if they, if someone gives me three pages of ch changes, I end up with ten. So that was my problem in the film industry. But uh, Tim certainly had his. He's he's the dominant person in the film. You know, I had a lot to do with it. And I added my input whenever. But it's Tim's movie and Tim's way of editing and. And directing and everything else. So, if this was the editing room. Where would Tim Carey be? Hmm? While you were editing, if this was the process of editing. Yeah, he was in the room most of the time. Would he be like over your shoulder? Yeah, over my shoulders, close, real close, breathing on me, getting in my way. <laughs> yep, he was, he was something else. What was your favorite scene? Favorite scene was <clears throat> well, as I say, but the the Long Beach Auditorium and the uh, and the five four ballroom uh, stick out quite a bit. Very well shot, very well directed. Uh, I liked the ending quite a bit, where you where the blood started flowing out of the wafer and all that. That was very dramatic, you know. I have some photos you might be able to point out that's recognizable. Wow. I just found that about a year ago, Carl. And I, I'm just going to give you a minute without recording here. If you know. where was this at? Well, I see it said Vista. It looked like the opening. It looked like it was the opening of Sinner. 
Boy, I don't recognize anyone. There are small photos too. It's a little tough to see detail. No, I don't. I don't. I can't recognize. You've got a hold of her hand. <laughs> oh God! Look at that. <laughs> that was him at the Long Beach Arena. I'm pretty sure. One of him and yeah. Zappa together in the same room. Right. I've got a picture of my brother with Hopper. They both got their girlfriends with him. He's with Dennis Hopper. Two, wow. Two of them, yeah, somewhere. Little picture. Yeah. Like this. Well, at the opening screening, how was how was the the film received in general? Well, it was very, very, very interesting because it, they were very quiet. As uh, that you mentioned that one screening and. I think the audience was stunned by what they saw. They didn't, uh, it was so different, you know. Uh, it was a good screening. It was a good crowd and it was a good screening. So, uh, Did you think it was going to take off after that and everybody was going to get paid and find well, fun? Not necessarily. Uh, he had no distribution, so you know, you make a film, so many of them, they make a film and then what do you do with it? You're stuck with it in the back of your car. <laughs> and uh, he was going to, Pour a wallet in theaters by himself, take it around and, and you know, collect the money from the tickets himself, which I guess he did. Uh, yeah, I have a, yeah, I have a picture of him actually selling the tickets and handing out popcorn. Yeah. And the guy said, hey, you're the guy in the movie. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's wonderful, isn't it? And he says, he says, he says, someone showed up, he says, he wanted to buy the tickets. He says, I thought this was the world's greatest singer. Not this. He thought it was a Mexican guy trying to buy the world's greatest. He thought sinner meant singer, but it wasn't. It was a sinner, so he was pretty disappointed. And he says one time they threw a stink bomb in the place, and he says there were there were a couple of people that wouldn't leave. They had rags over their faces watching it. They couldn't leave the room even with a stink bomb. Who threw the stink bombs? I don't know. Someone who didn't like the film, I guess. <laughs> Somebody. The main thing to do. Yeah. We used to do that when we were kids. Get a the nitrate film and roll it up and throw it, you know. That'll do the same thing. Yeah. Actually, you know, do a project of this nature, you know, especially this, this was everything, you know, this was actually, everything's riding on this, all his money, all his uh, tempers can get pretty, uh, especially two Pisces, as we've discovered. You got, I, you know, it's amazing that you actually saw the whole film through the end. You must have had some real uh, interesting artistic uh, confrontations. Well, we did. We did. But uh, we usually resolved it. Somehow we would resolve it. We did have our uh, differences. You know. We had a lot of confrontations about many things. Even to the point of him buying food for the dogs and not, uh, not paying me. Uh, I said I needed food for my children, and you're buying food for these dogs. <laughs> God Almighty! He said, "You know what he wanted to do? He wanted to change the end of the film. He wanted." He says, oh, and "He said it actually a couple of years before he passed away." He says, "Yeah, the ending should have had just at the very end." He said, "I might shoot it. Yeah, maybe I'll shoot it." He's all I want at the end is a lion. Lion standing in a room all by itself. But you don't see the lion right away. 
all you see is the lion's tail going and you don't really know what it is. You just see this thing going back and forth. And the last image you see is the lion. And that's the end of the film. It's supposed to be, basically, I guess he's, he's that's, symbolically, that was supposed to have been God. The Lord of the Jungle, huh? He would have added that to the ending. I don't know. I don't know if it would have worked. Whatever. <laughs> no, but that became, what do we know? that's the one thing he still wanted. He, he, no, he, it was it was the perfect film. It was it didn't need any more work. Yeah. It was so good that he wanted to keep adding on to it. Yeah, um, let's see. You, know, you you lost contact with how long had it been since you you had actually? Uh, you, when was the last time you actually spoke with my dad? How long did you think that was? Well, it was quite a while. Uh, Maybe 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 a couple of years after we finished the film, uh, I didn't I didn't have any too much personal contact with him. I'd find a I'd find a note every once in a while. He'd come to the studio and find me and uh, leave a note on my bench, and then he'd disappear. But uh, we didn't have too much personal contact after that. I was busy working and being in the Marines, and uh, you know. No, not too much. I don't know. We just didn't. Seeing him now, you, you had an experience with him. You, could, you knew firsthand who he was and you know, all that. What, if you remove all of that, if you remove all of that from, from the equation and just your experience of him uh, uh, having not experienced him in person, what, what you know, while you were in the throes of, of making a living in, in Hollywood, what do you think your personality was of him? What, 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 who was this character who had a, you know, just in general, what, 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 what do you make, what would you think you would have made of him? What would I have made of him? Yeah. He was unique and he was, he was, he was a standout in everything he did. Uh, you know, even the smallest role, you, you'd know that it was him and you wouldn't forget it. So he made him memorable, you know. There's a few actors like that in the industry that never become really uh, big, and they're still frustrated if they're alive that they never made it big. But everything they did was a cameo and, and uh, unforgettable, you know. Like the actor Mark Lawrence, who we know very well, is 90 years old. Is everything he ever does is uh, you remember. Jack Palance is another one. He, Jack finally got an Oscar, which was really unusual for a character of that type. Uh, they usually forget them, you know. It's only the film buffs and, uh, that remember these people. You know, my, my dad, everybody talks about my dad, they says, oh, you know, he held a gun to someone's head and he should, all, they had so many stories about my dad, it's unbelievable. Yeah. And do you remember any of those stories? Because, I mean, you could, you could speak firsthand because you said, well, I could have filmed for him. He'd bring strange people onto the set. He'd bring, He'd bring a black girl on the set, you know, or anything unusual to distract everybody. He would he would come in with some character and do something to be noticed. Uh. <laughs> what what performance do you do you like of him the of most? Him? 
I think paths of glory. Uh, being a being a retired marine and having been in two or three wars, uh, I I study the military and military history, and I I like that movie because it's about World War One, and uh, Tim was fantastic in that movie. Uh, Kirk Douglas was okay, but Tim Tim was very unusual in that movie. Did um did uh how was how was working? Do you remember Ray Dennis Steckler? Do you remember him? The cameraman. I remember vaguely, uh, Ray. I don't. I don't. I don't remember anything unusual about him. I know he was around a lot, but you know the, the principal shooting had been done. I came on after the film was shot, so I wasn't around the crew too much. Right. You know. How, how about? Um, do you remember someone called Titus Moody? Titus Moody. Yeah. Yeah. That's when I said Tide Rule. I must have met Titus Moody. Did Tim name him? I never heard of that. It's possible. He may have named him, yeah. Yeah. Titus Moody sounds Titus about Titus Moody. That's a great name. Titus Moody. Almost Mocking. as good as Ty's rule. Ty's rule. Mocking. Mocking the Hollywood system. Changing their names. How about um, uh, Gil Barreto? Gil? Gil, I didn't see him too much. He was around on and off, but uh, not a lot. How about um, his brother? George Carey. I never saw his brother. Was he there? Um, he was there during the production. He probably left when he showed No, up. I didn't ever saw George. No, George. Saw How about George. George Seymour, the gardener? Who? George Seymour, Hungarian guy that would do the gardening. I don't remember him either. You were too busy editing. I didn't know How, he... how about his how about his Great Danes? I remember the Great Dane was was it Caesar? That's it. Still remembers the name. Caesar. Too. Caesar. I remember the Great Dane and the police dog. This Caesar was Caesar and Nero, and what? Nero. Nero, I think, was the one. Of, Caesar and Nero was Caesar was the Great Dane. And they had another name for the shepherd. I forgot the shepherd was. Shepherd had another name. Um, it was a big dog. Big dog. Um. You had phoned the house the same number you had from the fifties. That was pretty interesting. The house. He, had, he hadn't phoned my dad's number for the only number he had was right. my dad's number that had been hooked up since 1957. Yeah. And he he rang it in the 90s. You know, like a couple of years ago. My brother yes. answered it. Yeah. Been you know phone practically hooked up same number for 50 years. That was the only connection he still had to Tim Carey, but he had phoned. I don't know what he asked. He asked my brother about something. Then I I my brother not really in the film business. He get, he always gives me the numbers. A lot of people call me and say, Tim Carey is no longer on the planet. Oh, what? They couldn't believe it. But uh, then I'd, I'd find out who they were and you know, give, them, give them the lowdown. Well, I, I certainly always remember El Monte. <laughs> Can't forget El Monte. Now it's a bandito town. Mm. Um, uh, but I remember you phoned and I said, Dad, I, I recognized Carl Mahawking immediately. And he said, Yeah, I want to I wanna see the film. I don't think you'd seen it for you hadn't seen it for a long time. I think you wanted your wife to see it. Yes, I don't know. Did you see it? Mm -mm. You didn't? Oh, you didn't watch it. Oh, oh now she'll watch yeah. it. Now she's inspired. She's After this, she'll want to watch it. Yeah, she's a movie, movie buff. Really? Yeah. What? Well, not really. I'm not. Um. And all Now, what? Now, what was it? What, what films did you work on? 
Carl, what was it? You started with, I guess, West Side Story? Well, I worked, no, I worked at Paramount for five years when I first started out, and I worked on... Uh, uh, my first film I did was uh, Bridges of Tokaree with Grace Kelly was in it. I did one reel, sound effects. I did The Country Girl, which was got an Oscar for being Crosby. And then uh, did a couple of minor films, some of Charlton Heston's first films. Uh, then I got on The Desperate Hours, which is the Humphrey Bogart movie. And uh, I did seven of the reels. And that's when I found out that I knew what I was doing because they always kept us down and I uh, couldn't get a raise. I wanted to get the same money the other people were getting. So uh, we started to form an organization of sound editors. I was going to meetings and I met a fellow from Warner Brothers. And he said, come on over here, we'll pay you $20 a week more. So uh, I did that. They were very upset when I left, but I got, to get out, got out of there and went to Warner Brothers. Immediately went to work on a film without any supervision, which was Blood Alley with John Wayne. I did the last reel in the picture, not having seen the film. They would stick us on this thing and we had to do it somehow. So eventually I did a couple of other films there, one with Edward G. Robinson. And then I got on Rebel Without a Cause. I did three or four reels of that. And uh, then I got an offer to go to television at more money and and that's what seemed to be the thing to do, so I could, you know, make more money to support my family. And uh, I left Warner's when I could have been stayed there and worked on Giant and East of Eden and those big features. But there was, there were so many of them, it was, you know, no big deal to leave. I probably should have stayed, but I left, went to went to uh, television, which was interesting because I was working on a series called Crossroads, and one of the editors was uh, Jimmy Smith who was D.W. Griffith's editor. And he was cutting without uh, without sound. He'd run the picture in the Moviola, the old black Moviola's cut the picture. And Gene Fowler Jr. was one of the directors, and I worked with Gene there. And eventually I got back into features again. I don't know the exact, can't remember the exact progression, but uh, I got onto features. I got onto, I got onto West Side Story, you know, and uh, did the sound effects on that and laid them all out, and then I left to work on Tim's movie. You know, and hardly anybody knows I worked on that movie, but I did quite a bit of the work. You know, the sound effects. Uh, did you get screen credit for? No, no, no screen credit. Most of most of the, the big movies I worked on, I didn't get credit. Why is that? They didn't want to share the credit. Today everybody gets credit, they wouldn't give us credit. And then the, then the older guys wouldn't share the credit. Uh, I worked on Farewell to Arms for three months with Selznick and didn't get credit. I worked as assistant film editor. And they only give credit to, they didn't even give credit to the assistant film editor, I think, in those days. So then I worked on, I worked for Mike Todd for 13 months on Around the World in 80 Days and didn't get credit. And I did most of the most of the tough stuff in the movie, the breaking up the steamship and the bullfight and every other thing in there. No credit. <laughs> uh, now you worked on another film. And I went back to uh, Warner Brothers. I worked on Sayonara. Uh, we used to do our own Foley. You have, now you have Foley experts and uh, we used to do everything. Uh, you know, 
What kind of things? You mean actually the actual noises, the crunching, all that stuff? Yeah, all that. The footsteps, Brando running up the stairs, and that, that's me here and there. And sometimes we do voices in there and do lines and never get paid for them. We just, just, we just do it. You had to do it, you know. Uh, did a lot of stuff. A lot of it was embarrassing, but we did it anyway, you know. You have to recreate all the sounds in the movie for the foreign version and whatnot. Then I worked television, I worked on The Fugitive, worked for Quinn Martin quite a bit. Uh, worked on uh, 12 O'Clock High, a series. Finally went back on active duty with the Marine Corps for the Vietnam War for a year and a half, made films for them. Uh, came back and started cutting sound effects again. But the one break I got, I got, I worked on a, uh, I think I worked on a jungle movie. And uh, I did all the sound on that. There was hardly any sound in it. I recreated all the sound. And then I, I got to be a, an assistant on uh, Manchurian Candidate. And uh, we were working at the Goldwyn a lot upstairs up there. And, uh, which is where uh, Tim, had, Tim had come up there at one time, I know. Uh, I was working with the editor, who was Ferris Webster, and Frankenheimer was shooting so much footage that uh, we didn't know what to do with it. And uh, particularly on the dream sequences and the convention. So uh, what Frankenheimer had me do was to get an 8 by 10 photo of every take and he was going to try to figure out what to do with it or whatever. So finally, at one point, George Axelrod and uh, the editor got me in the office and we sort of made some uh, lines on the script here and there. They said, you two go try to cut it, Carl, and see what you can put together. Well, it was a mountain of film. They put me in a separate, separate room with my own editor, Harold, my own assistant, Harold Lavelle, who was a World War I British Army veteran from the Battle of Wipers. Old Harold was like an old maid. He was my assistant. And I had all this film in there and started cutting. And uh, I really think it was my, my work on The Sinner that helped me to, to work on this movie because I knew how to cut. Nobody would give me a break, but I knew how to cut. And uh, I put the I put the stuff together as well as I could, and at first Frankenheimer wouldn't look at it. Nobody was in my room. The editor wasn't in there. Frankenheimer was in there. Nobody was in there but my assistant and me and all this film. So we put it together and we finally got Frankenheimer to look at it, and he was pretty pleased with it and uh, made a few suggestions, and that was it. And uh, most of the stuff, the dream sequences, I laid out and ordered as an assistant. I ordered all those complicated dream sequences. And uh, the convention, we kept, I, I, I cut the convention to the beat of the Star Spangled Banner and, and uh, John kept wanting to tighten it, uh, tighten it up and I kept tightening it up like, like we did in the, uh, the scenes in the center. So uh, anyway, the film was over and I, I thought I would get credit as a film editor because I was being paid as a film editor and had my own assistant and the editor would not give me the credit. I said, well, how about as an associate or you being the supervisor? He wouldn't do it. He wanted to get an Oscar, so uh, kind of upset me. What can you do? So after 
after he left, for he left to do The Great Escape. And uh, I came back on the movie because they reshot some scenes. And the assistant said to me, Carl, you've got to get credit on this movie. He says, you know, you need it to, to get other work. And I said, well, which I had told the editor I would never interfere with him on getting a job, but I needed I needed the credit. See? And uh, I went to the union and uh, they shot me down. They wouldn't give me credit and that, that, was, that was that. So no one knows I worked on that. But well, my, my name is on there as an assistant film editor, which is a lie, you know. But that's where it is. They said, I got upset at first. I said, don't put my name on there. And Axel Rod said, you've got to have your name on this movie. Well, I've got the name on the movie. What does it mean? Never got another editing job other than TV, you know. So that was the story of that. So you, you, you mean, you only worked on two movies, Sinner and Manchurian Candidate? Well, I did another one called uh, Half Pint, which you can't find anywhere. Uh, I did that at... Uh, Oh, on Seward there somewhere. I did. They conned me into working on that. I was working by myself in this room all by myself, and I finished the film. And I had 12.5% of it, never got a cent out of it. But I have, I had my name on the billboard. I had my name on the uh, posters, which no editor had their names on posters at that time. I'm on there as a supervising film editor. Which, uh, I don't know where the film is. Half Pint. I'll have to look that one up. Yeah. Half Pint. Well, that's a great story. Um, what did Manchurian Candidate end up doing? What did it end up doing? Yeah, how did it do at box office, and did it win any awards? Well, it it didn't get the it didn't get the uh, Oscar for editing. So uh, I don't know what other awards it got. I can't remember at the time. I blotted most of it out, but uh, uh, we previewed it up in San Francisco, and I went up there, and I think we made a few changes. After the, after the, no, I guess we didn't. No, I'm thinking of Farewell to Arms. But we previewed it and the people liked it, a very good response. And they were saying it was so close to the book and this and that, which neither here nor there. But, uh, you know, I don't know what happened with it. I was kind of fed up with it at the time and didn't want to hear anything about it. I was so upset with it, you know. Oh, I bet. Yeah. Now, what do, what do, you, what do you think of Hollywood? Hollywood? Well, it's like uh, you never know what's going to happen, and uh, there's no rhyme or reason to anybody getting ahead in that business. It's all uh, luck and accident. It's like, yeah, West Side Story. That's uh, I was working on a TV show, and there were two of us assistants assisting, and finally the editor said one of you is going to become an editor. I forgot about that one. It was called. Uh, uh, I'll think of it in a minute. It was with. Uh, uh, Williams, the actor, it was of a C, a C thing. Anyway, he said, when are you going to become an editor, make up your mind? And I said, well, I guess it's going to be me. So uh, the other guy, they, they they let him go. He was an Englishman. He, he, he left and he went, he was walking along the streets on uh, Goldwyn and Bob Weiss saw him and hired him as the film editor on the West Side Story and he got an Oscar. And he really didn't do the work. Uh, it was mostly done by the music editor and Bob Weiss. So I stayed on the TV series and cut 24 out of 39 of the TV series, which was really a, a hassle, but I was I was cutting, you know. It's the TV series West Side Story? 
uh, now it was called uh, something about a boat. This guy and his daughter on a boat. Love boat? No, no. Williams, actor, nice guy. He's gone now. Uh, Christ, I lost. That's, uh, I can't think of the name. About what year was that? <sighs> it was just before West Side Story. So it's fifties. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was on the. It was on an office office building there on the Sunset. By uh, one side of the building was Dennis and and whatnot, and the other side we had cutting rooms. You know. And the producer producer said I didn't know anything about timing, and he'd run he'd run my first cuts full speed on the Moviola, and I didn't know anything about timing. Yet I cut 24 out of the 39. <laughs> They know a way to encourage you, but but it's like it's like many times it's like a doctor becoming an intern again, which is what what happened to me. If you have a family, you have to work to uh, support them. And in Hollywood, if you if you work on a certain type of a film, you're typecast. Like if I worked on the three camera shows and was an editor, I'm not able to work on uh, some great movie, which doesn't make sense. I could I could cut anything anywhere. It doesn't matter what it is. But your typecast, whether you uh, work on comic shows or dramatic shows or adventure shows, and to me it's all the same. Film is film. But uh, we couldn't. I was like the lost generation of uh, of assistant film editors. We couldn't get. We couldn't buck the old editors with all their massive credits. They had hundreds of credits, and how could we get a break? Only under very unusual circumstances. One of the guys who made it was Tom Rolfe, and Tom was cutting some of the big pictures. He was also Ferris's assistant, and he somehow, he somehow got over that hurdle. But uh, I worked, I assisted uh, Jimmy Newcomb, who cut uh, uh, Gone with the Wind. And yeah, I could never, he would never give me a break. I even assisted him on a TV series. And, Helped him out and everything, but he would never say, "Let's make Carl an editor." They wouldn't do that. Would it have helped if you were Jewish? I don't know what it was. It might, it might have. I was a token <laughs> Armenian. At one time, they had me listed as an Indian at Paramount when all the minority things came out. But um, they had you actually. They had you. Not too many Jews became editors. They were in produ producing. Editing is a tough job. They're in the other phases of filmmaking. You know. What, I was going to ask you one question. But, uh, when when Sinner first came out, it was huge. I know it had it had because I opened up a couple of cans that had uh, it must have had like an hour extra that had been cut away from the original cut. Mm -hmm. They were labeled so. Do you remember Sinner being a long? Well, when I saw it, when you sent me that print, it seemed like it was shorter. Yeah. And I, I couldn't. I don't know what's missing, but it seemed like it was shorter. It, was it short. didn't seem like it was as much as, as I thought it was. Right. No. It was uh, you? I, I sent you a version that had been a couple things had been. Uh, it was the same. It was the same thing. Only a couple scenes were pulled out. Yeah. Yeah. My dad had this thing. He was never finished. You'd still be. You would. You would have been working for him for fifty years, Carl, in the same film. I guess so. <laughs> Which is all right. Uh, we were used to working on the same piece of film all the time. You know, you work on the same piece 
10 minutes of film for a whole month, for Christ's sakes, you know. Uh, just never ended with the changes and everything. Changes after changes after changes. Uh, yeah. Do you think Sinner will ever be brought to the public? Do you think the masses will ever absorb Sinner? Probably not. And it need not be. It's only just for a few, uh, a few privileged few that it will, they'll ever discover it, you know. Do you know I've gotten letters from every continent? Yeah. Every continent? Yeah, I believe Probably, I probably oh, in, in total, probably about a thousand. Yeah. People that I don't know, that know about Sinner. Mm -hmm. All the way from Africa, every place in Europe, all of, I mean, Indonesia, all yeah. of the Orient. People that, these are film buff people that, yeah. that have heard about it, but yeah. don't, don't, don't know how to get their hands yeah. out. But they find me. They find, you know, somewhere they find the yeah. El Monte address. Because yeah. the address is the same address. Somehow they know in El Monte, <laughs> you know, carry. They track it down through one source or another. Um, uh, let's see here. Did you, it was, was editing your, your chosen uh, vocation, Carl? I wanted to make my own movies. I wanted to, I wanted to, I thought the natural progression was editing, directing, and making, you know, making your own movies. I had dreams of, of uh, writing and directing and making movies, but uh, somehow it uh, got lost along the way. Now an actor becomes a director all of a sudden, which is unnatural. Some of them make it, but most of them should never stick, a, should never even try it. They should stick to acting. Uh, I studied, I, I took classes at USC cinema classes after the Korean War thinking that would help me, but uh, at the time uh, the cinema department was nothing there. It isn't like it was today and uh, they didn't want any smart college kids around in the industry. So I kept it quiet that I was going to school and taking classes and set, set designing and uh, editing. I was the only one in school that was working in the industry. I had a job in the industry going to school, night school at SC. So, whatever. Um, so we well, can still make a film, Carl. Huh? <laughs> well, you'd have to direct something. Oh, I don't care. I don't <laughs> care. What does it matter? You know. Uh, you still making good films today? I mean, what do you think of films today? There are some good films. Mostly, mostly the foreign films, and once in a while I'll see a film that I really enjoy. It turns out the reviews are horrible for some reason. I think they're jealous. Uh, I enjoyed The Green Mile, I enjoyed Angela's Ashes recently. I try to see as many films as I can. I was seeing films, a lot of the people that I work with never even go to see movies. Uh, they don't even know what's playing, but I try to see as, as many as I can. You know, I used to travel all the way across town to see the first foreign films like Bicycle Thief and Open City and those influenced me. Eisenstein's films. I studied Eisenstein. I, uh, he was supposed to have made uh, American Tragedy, the film that was finally made with Liz Taylor, you know, with uh, Montgomery Clift. I got the script from New York, from the museum, and studied it. Some of his film was locked in the vaults at Paramount. I was influenced by his books and things, movies. Funny you should mention that because that was one of the comments of Sinner when Cassavetes saw it. 
They said, uh, I guess you deserve credit for this one. He said, Kerry, well, it's a combination of you and him, because you cut it. It says, Kerry has the uh, emotional brilliance of an Eisenstein. Yeah. And I have to say, the way it was cut reminds me of uh, Potemkin. Mm. Yeah, I saw Potemkin a long time ago. They're real, they're real stark. They're hard cuts, yeah. and they go from one thing, yeah. but it never, yeah. you know, Fellini would say, what would Fellini say? Yeah, I had one in Manchurian, but it still upsets me that they didn't do it the way I wanted to. I, I, had, a, I had a straight cut, and damn it, Frankenheimer made it dissolve. It was a straight cut to a, a train, I think it was, a close-up, and a, that whistle blew, and it would have scared the hell out of you, and they, it was too much for them, and they, uh, they made a dissolve out of it. And the one thing that I did uh, at the very end when when uh, Harvey, Lawrence Harvey, when he shoots when he shoots the shot, I synchronized a, a lightning bolt coming out of the shot. That's my that was my my contribution. And also in the beginning when we reshot the Korean thing, to explain more that it was in Korea. Uh, there's music playing, and it's music I supplied. It's a record that we played during the Korean War called China Night, a Japanese uh, record, and I brought that music there, and they put it in that scene. I think it's in there. Wow. Yeah, because every Marine knew, knew that song. So there's little spots here and there where I had something to do with the movies. Yeah. Editing's a tough science. I've, I've, I've been editing for about, oh, I started editing when I was nine, Yeah. helping my dad with film, and I've edited since. That's actually how I make my living, but I do all my own stuff. I yeah. do little video things, but Byron's my assistant, and he's actually he's editing. He's doing most of the editing now, because we've got an all-digital, you know, yeah. Avid, right. and uh, just haven't found the time to learn it. Also, he's he knows most of it. He, I kind of do a Tim Carey, I'm over his shoulder. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I'm telling him how if it's good, you just need cuts. Yeah. If it's good, don't you know? Dissolve is really something for an effect, something right. that's supposed to you know, right. just, you know that. Yeah. Well, is, do you, isn't that the way it works? I mean, you know better than I do. Passage of time is dissolve, or to make up for something where they goofed, and you can't solve it, dissolve it. Right. There it is. <laughs> but uh, we use wipes a lot. We use wipes on uh, Love America style quite a bit. We're, no, we're using flips. And I stopped them from making flips because they're expensive. I said, don't make flips anymore because I, I was watching the money too. Uh, but I, I did a lot of straight cutting in Brady Bunch pilot. The pilot was so bad they weren't going to cut the negative. And I, I got on it. I was the second editor assigned to it, and I got on it, and I started making quick, like jumping from one scene to another without making them get out of the car, close the door, and all this crap. You know, you get them over there, get it going. That's <laughs> timing. What you, that's what you did with Senate. Timing. That's what's wrong with these movies today. I see a movie, and I tell yeah. Pat, I said, you know what's wrong with it? I'm not working on it because the director's in love with every damn frame of the film. And they won't, they won't listen. They, they won't listen to anybody. What did we watch? And you said, "Oh, I just can't get into this." The very beginning was was it um, the talented Mr. Ripley? Oh, the talented Mr. Ripley. Yeah, it's dead. The first. Oh I mean, you gosh. could throw 
Somebody's made a comment once, throw the first reel away and you're, you, can, you can make your movie. It's Capra or somebody like that. Mm. Get rid of the reel one. And they could have got rid of about three reels of that movie. Yeah. Have you seen that? I haven't mm -hmm. seen it yet, no. Mm -hmm. Supposed to be great. But, uh, yeah. that, that's because a studio spent a lot of money it's on it. It's not great, it's not I great. don't think. It's just propaganda. Uh, they got to make their yeah. money back. <laughs> it's not great. It's amazing, isn't it? I mean, I, you start thinking there's something wrong with you because you read all these reviews and then you watch it and you yeah, think, I watch them here. Yeah. I got yeah. 70 films this year. They've inundated with the films. And most of them are a waste of time. I don't know why they even put them up for a nomination or to, to waste Politics. our time. You know. We're living in a strange time right now, too. Yeah. There's a lot of, there's a, you know, film, as you know, you did war films. Film, film's like the greatest propaganda tool the yeah. world has ever known. Oh, yeah. And every, most of those films you see where they've spent big dollars and they're really trying to get you to watch it, there's an underlying message. Yeah. There always is. Yeah. And most kids don't realize it. I think right now the main message, the main, the main, the main thing to do is to dumb down the general public to get yeah. everybody to actually degenerate to the point where there's not much the natives could do in terms of fighting back. Yeah, it's really sell your daughter to the black man and wipe out every bit of uh, trace of your family yeah. so that there's no stronghold left to fight back. That's actually the the overall theme that. I find it's my own personal. Yeah. My own personal. I took him to agree. Get up for a minute. I'll be back. Mm -hmm. I did. Serious. We call it Simon Underwater. Oh, Simon Underwater. Bill yeah. Williams. Bill Williams or Bob Williams? Bill or Bob. Yeah. I never saw that. Yeah, they don't know that one. These either. these are the movies I worked on. See. Is there a, um, a gas station or a convenience store? Movie that I worked on. I forgot. Called Three in the Attic. I've heard of that one. With the Vet Mimiu and Chris Jones, we had six different versions of it, and uh, I was finally I was cutting. I I was cutting one version with the uh, with Nicholson, producer, and the director was cutting another version with another editor, and then they were going to reshoot reshoot to my version. And they did reshoot to my version, but then they, they dumped me and the other editor ended up uh, with a picture. I don't think I got credit on that. Uh, Amazing how you do all the work that you've done, all the types of work you've done today, those guys would have been full, it would have been really full credit. Yeah, yeah I know. Yeah, I know. Well, they even put the assistant to the assistant to the assistant. Exactly. I but I never got credit on the Odd Couple as an editor. Never got credit. I did get credit on Happy Days as an editor, I think, and probably on Laverne. Um, Why would they give you credit on the Odd Couple? I was credited as associate producer. Oh, the but associate I was cutting. producer. But I was cutting. Why, why, why would they do a thing like that? Right. Actually, it seems a little more prestigious to be associate producer. Though. Yeah, but they weren't getting paid, and associate producers usually don't, don't know what they're doing. Your last so, name was Goldberg. <laughs> yeah, story. yeah. So anyway, that's the way it was working out. I had too much to do. I had too much to do. Do you know one of the things my dad used to do? I never knew, because I used to go to the studio a lot with my dad. My dad learned a lot of Hebrew. Oh, and wow. he had half the casting directors convinced that he was Jewish. <laughs> and but, you should have uh, heard them talk. You should have heard them talking about Goyas, yeah, non-Jews. Yeah. And my dad was a non-Jew. Yeah. Of course. But I worked on Rose Tattoo. I did a couple of reels of that. 
That was my it. nickname, Rose Tattoo. Mm. My dad used that on me. I worked on the Scent of Mystery, which was the smell of vision movie for Mike Todd Jr. Uh, oh, I worked on Advice and Consent with Preminger for 14 days. That was quite an experience. Wow, that, what was it like working with Preminger? Fantastic. Are you still filming me? Yeah. Preminger, I was cutting at Columbia, it was sound effects. And uh, I was working on this reel of the Senate roll call of Advise and Consent. And uh, they were having a Senate roll call, which is alphabetical. And I'm running the film, and when you cut away from the, from the main uh, roll call, you would cut into an actor uh, talking about it and this and that. Well, offstage you had to recreate the roll call. Well, I'm doing this, I'm cutting two tracks, one with uh, certain things and the other with the other. I ran out of names. On the soundtrack I had, I ran out of names, and I couldn't believe it. I kept looking at it and looking at it. I said, Jesus, God, I'm out of names. And uh, I went to the main sound editor, and I told him, and he said, you sure? I said, yes, I'm sure. Well, he was afraid to go to Preminger, so they were all scared to death of him. So I went to Preminger and told him, boy, just the lid flew. So he came up to my room started yelling and screaming, I showed him what was wrong, where they were missing, because the actor was in New York, they had to go to New York to add those, uh, the names. So I finally convinced him of it, which worked out all right. And after he left, they put a note on my door calling a Stalag 84, whatever the room number was. <laughs> but uh, when I left, I had to leave, I think we were finished with the work, we were in, in the projection room and uh, Otto, Otto uh, wrote me out an uh, introduction to uh, Senator Douglas and also to Alan Drury, the author, and wrote me an introduction and uh, it was very nice to me, just 14 days. So that was a very interesting experience. I went to see him later on when I was in, in the Marines during Vietnam and I went to see him and had a drink with him in Washington, D.C. Uh, that was quite an experience. He, um, my dad had a run-in with him too. He was on the set of a western. My dad had hitchhiked all the way out from New York, and they told him if you go out to Arizona, you can you can get a job in this movie, probably as an you know atmosphere person. Shows up on the set after hitchhiking, getting lost in the desert. Some Indian saved him. My dad has the story where he's crossing the desert and he's dying of thirst because he only got so far hitchhiking, and he had to get he's in the right he's going the right direction. But he says he saw an Indian in the distance walking like he was, only walking away from. Him. And he called him, hey. <laughs> and the Indian came all the way, you know, ran over and 20 feet away yeah. moved the rock. There was a river yeah. running right yeah. under, underground, and he got his water out of there. Okay. He showed up on the he showed up um, he showed up on the set. I forgot what set it was. A Bogart film. He started the first night he got there. Bogart thought he was a hired actor, one of the one of the you know one of the main not not main, one of the you know one of the regular actors in it, and they invited him to dinner. And then he sat down. He, he introduced him. To, you know, they, had, they sat down at the table with the whole cast. And uh, finally, one of the actors said, "What, what part are you playing?" I said, "I'm not playing. I ain't even got hired yet. I just showed up here." Mm. And he says, "You should have seen Bogart. I was so disappointed that he invited someone who just hitchhiked from New York wow. to dinner, thinking that my dad looked like an actor. He must have been one of the actors, mm -hmm. big guy." Mm -hmm. And uh, so the next morning, he went to go get a job from from. Uh, he said. Uh, 
you show up at this place and you see if you can get a ticket. It's a ticket. Once you get a ticket, you're on. It's your meal ticket. And uh, the guy says, "You, yeah, I'll give you the part." He says, "Just uh, show up tomorrow morning, and I'll give you your meal ticket." So my dad showed up, got in line, and I uh, said, "No, sorry, that's the last one. You're out." It's a. Uh, uh, I said, "No, no, I talked to someone. He said tomorrow, come in. I, I got it. That's why I'm here." And he says, "No, uh, you can't. You can't. Uh, you can't. Uh, you can't." He said, "We already got everybody." So I said, "No, no, I came all the way. I got." My dad wasn't gonna take no for an answer, so we went to go see the director. He wanted to see Preminger. Mm -hmm. Because someone said that he's gonna get hired, and he didn't get hired. So my dad knocks on the door. It's Premature's door. My dad couldn't show up. He had he had to get it. He had to. He didn't come for no reason at all. So he knocked on the door. It's early in the morning. Knocked on the door, and uh, someone answered. And he had said he had. It was obviously Premature was shaving, and he had all these. Um, Carl came to work for us as an assistant film editor, and due to the volume of film that was shot and the need for a speedy completion of the film, he was soon raised to the category of film editor and carried as such until completion of the picture. Carl worked in his own cutting room with his own assistant with a minimum of supervision. His personally, He personally edited the following sequences, both dream sequences, Central Park, the convention, and worked on making changes in other sequences required. When the primary editor was unavailable, Carl was brought back to make to make additional editorial changes on the Korean War sequences, etc. Again, I heartily recommend his abilities as a feature film editor on this successful production of The Manchurian Candidate, which was directed for me by John Frankenheimer. Wow. This is now What could I do with that? I was blackballed. I think the old editors blackballed me. Yeah. Which editors do you think blackballed you? The old time editors. The old oh, the old time. They didn't yeah. like the fact that you wanted to get the. Your, your I wanted credit and I was bucking the old editor. That must happen now, too, don't you think? June 10th, 1963, to whom it may concern. It gives me great pleasure to recommend the talents of Mr. Carl Mahakian, who worked on the editing of The Manchurian Candidate. Now, this is 63. In addition to my own high regard for his talent, it might be noted that the film editing on the picture was nominated for an Academy Award. Let me, let me repeat, Mr. Mahakian is, is young, talented, and ambitious, and I, can't, and, I can't, and I cannot speak too highly of him. Sincerely, George Axelrod. That's a big name. Yeah, it is. It is. I've, I've heard this name on more than it one occasion. Writer. Major writer. Major writer. Major writer. That's where I've heard it. George yeah. Axelrod. He was the producer on it. Wow. But what could I, how could I get a job with that? I could never use it. I never used it for anything. I bet you could have, though. This could have no. been, I mean, it was It was pretty much your, your. Uh, you know, it's funny, because these things, once you get started, you're just trying to survive. You're trying to make a living. Yeah. You're trying to make right. a living. You right. don't have time to run around and show everybody your, you know. Right. You're busy making That's them. what I was trying to do, yeah. yeah. I tell everybody who starts out, I say, listen. Uh, especially young actors. Anybody, I get lots of calls because I have a business and they think I can sprinkle magic fairy dust on. I'm, I have trouble sprinkling magic fairy dust on myself, let yeah, alone them. But um, I tell them, I say, yeah, I'm a, I want to be a director, film, or I want to be an actor, I want whatever it is they want, I want to edit something. I said, well, they're fresh, just got here from out of town. I said, well, you understand. I said, so you want to join the circus? <laughs> yeah. I said, no, you really want to join the circus. I said, what do you mean? I said, well, that's what it is. The circus comes to town, the circus leaves town. Mm -hmm. 
this isn't permanent. Mm-hmm. It's very, it's like a sandcastle. Yeah. Once it, once it, once it's built, and everything's great, and you're you're the you're the guy in it, and you're the you're, you're the juggler or the or the, the high high you know, the high artist. But once it's all over, it's over. You, you're over. You're yeah. just another clown. Right. You're just another. Yeah. You're just another juggler. Yeah. Just know. Yeah, if you, if that ringmaster's gone. You gotta, you gotta get in line the next time because yeah. there's a whole other circus trying to get right. that clown part. You're very well put. Yeah, you're the greatest guy we ever had, but that's all you ever hear of him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's over. What's the line? You're, you're as good as your, you're as good as your last film. Yeah, yeah. But is anybody who can make a living in it, anybody, especially a non-Jew, that could actually make a living in it and actually, uh, you know, at, at the end, of, you know. Yeah, the, the end of working 20 years or 30 years actually yeah. eke a living out of it. Yeah. You've done some seri- either you're very talented, or you've done some. You're a, you're kind of, you've become a professional ass kisser. Yeah. And uh, yeah, lost a lot. Yeah. yeah. This guy that called me the other day, Harvey Stamler, he's a Jew. He was an editor and never made it. You know, like me, always minor stuff and this and that. And being a Jew, Jew, there are not too many Jews that are that were editors. You know. I, he should have been a producer. Well, his cousin was a producer who died of a heart attack young. But after Harvey was talking and talking about his frustration and everything, and I said, Harvey, I said, you've got an attitude. He said, right. I said, I do too. That's our problem. <laughs> yeah, I could be. But they used to say, it'd say, well, I had these two clowns that were executive producers on Odd Couple or whatever it was, Happy Days, I guess it was Happy Days, yeah. And uh, Gary Marshall would say, give them something to do. Get them in the cutting room, get their opinion. You know, they'd come in there and didn't stand behind me, didn't know what to say. And I'd, I'd something and they'd, one guy would say, did the general say that? Because they knew I was a colonel in the Marines, see? They always after my ass for that. <laughs> no. <laughs> but... Uh, well, it's a strange combination, isn't it? Okay. Well, well, yep. weird and the Marines. But Otto, like Otto... Yeah, it, neither one likes the other. It's always a problem, you know. Especially during the McCarthy area, I was a captain in the Marines. Come back from Korea, killing communists, and here I am with all these, you know, with all that problem. But Otto would, Otto would, I could see him driving to the studio, thinking, "How am I going to screw everybody up?" See, and he'd get to the front, to the front gate with the cop, his poor cop there, and he'd, he'd say, "Where are we dubbing?" Well, the cop didn't know anything about where they're dubbing, and he's get on the phone in New York and chew them out. The policeman doesn't know where we're dubbing. You know, we'd go back, find the dubbing room, which you probably knew where it was anyway, get in the dubbing room, go back in the machine room. Well, what what director would go back in the machine room where all the reels are being hooked up and everything, start yelling at them to hurry and this and that, and he'd say, all right, bring in some coffee. We don't have coffee. Bring in coffee for the mixers, for so-and-so and so as the projectionist. Everybody but the sound editors, they don't get coffee. Why would they get coffee? What was that all about? He just did it just for the hell of it. <laughs> he was pulling your ears, yanking your chain. What he's doing? Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, Otto Preminger. He did well. Otto Preminger did all right. Yeah. They have a story about him. He says that there was a question in a magazine not that long ago. He says, "I understand. Is it is it is it a fact that Timothy Carey tied up Otto Preminger and held a gun to his head to get a part in a movie?" I don't think so. Otto. Yeah. You probably wanted to. That's possible. Wow. Um, let's see here. 
anyway. Uh, What were your Emmys are? They're meaningless. One is for, one of the Emmys is for the Miami Vice pilot, and as a sound editor, and the other one is for uh, uh, the day after the atomic bomb movie that I did sound effects on. Very minor work, but I got an Emmy. Got two Emmys, and the one I really uh, would have liked to have gotten was the Winds of War. We were nominated, but we didn't get it. And which upset Dan Curtis quite a bit. He came over to our table and apologized. He said, they hate me, that's why you didn't get the Emmy. So, whatever. We did get a golden reel for it, which is a sound, a sound editor's award. That name sounds familiar. Dan Curtis? Dan Curtis was around. You know yeah. what Dan Curtis did? What? Dan Curtis was, <laughs> he was one of the characters in my dad's fart play. Mm. Until he found out what he was into. <laughs> Wait a second. He actually liked it until he really started, you know, actually he was really getting, you know, you don't just join a Tim Carey thing, it's, you don't just show up as an actor, because he, he was interested in acting, Dan was. He was? Yeah, he was interested in acting, and then, just a little too much, he started, he started, I guess, told something, you know, it's a, he probably told a couple of friends about what he was doing, and that's, you know, you lose friends over things like that, so he, he escaped, but he was, he's, he's the call all the time. And he's one of my dad's pretty good friends. Anytime there was something he could hire him on, he'd hire yeah. my dad on. Yeah. Dan Curtis. So could, I'm going to interview him, too. Yeah, you should. That was a hell of a project. We did like nine movies in very little time. With, with uh, Dan Curtis? Well, that Winds of War was like nine features. Oh, well, that's huge. That was a big film. Huge. So was The Day After. That was a big film. Yeah, but I mean, that was only like a... An hour and a half. This thing went on forever. It was like nine films. Oh, it was. It was like the first of those big long series. Yeah. One of the, one of the then you have a film award too, don't you? What's the uh, film what? Award? What's the a film award for? Yeah, I said that. Yeah, for that. For what? For the Winds of War, the Golden Reel. Mm -hmm. Golden yeah, Reel was for that. But I did 20, 20 of the reels, and most of the most of the battle sequences, which having been in World War Two was very upsetting to me. But at one point. Uh, I had to go to the Marine Corps birthday ball and I had to wear my uniform and here I was working. I said, how am I going to do it? I don't want to wear it the uniform, so I don't want to wear it at the studio. <coughs> so I did bring it to the studio in my cutting room and uh, put on my blues, full Colonel Marines, all my ribbons and everything. Wow. And one of the guys said, you look better than uh, Robert Mitchum. Go in and see Dan. So I said, okay. So I walked over to uh, Dan Curtis's room and I said, <clears throat> you know, request permission to go aboard, sir. And he turned around and he said, wow, you know. <laughs> and this one idiot film editor they had asked me what country the uniform was from. I said, God, they've got him as a film editor on this movie? <laughs> That's incredible. <laughs> he must have felt like going through the film. <laughs> Marines had a great uniform. Yeah. They had a great yeah, uniform. It's a good uniform. My dad, my dad, even though he was yeah, 15, he got Kicked out of the yeah. The one thing he never lost, I still have it. It was like, it was like you know, the character one of the one of the uh, George Schultz characters, the Charles Schultz. Yeah. Carries the one that carries the blanket everywhere. Linus. Linus. That was his coat. His coat didn't go anywhere. He didn't go. 
is 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 marine the long the long trench coat yeah the marine trench coat it was everything it was like that that's what kept them warm that was it was cold at night that was the extra blanket yeah this is marine coat it's a real survive a piece of survival material wow. yeah 60 years you lugged it everywhere and it's still it's wool so it's an amazing piece of material that wow. heavy wool coat yeah that thick i still have it yeah. oh good for you oh yeah yeah. It's a little beaten up, but uh, it's. Uh, yeah, I still got some blankets from the war. Do you really? Or blanket, yeah. He never couldn't. He he could never get over Paris. So Island. how long was he in before they found out? Uh, what, what is? I mean, you're you're actually a drill. You're actually what is? I never understood what it is. A locker box. That's what, what your belongings are in. It's a wooden box, usually wooden or metal. Probably was wooden though. Full of all those good clothes and stuff. But what's that, what, what, what's what's the term? If you say this guy, he says this big stoop's gonna fall over locker box tonight. He's yeah. telling it to all the guy, all the people in the yeah. platoon. Well, they're gonna get rid of him. They're gonna dump him. Yeah. Means they're gonna drive dump. him out. They're gonna drive him out. Yeah, which they do. They they would drive out somebody that couldn't make it, that they knew would get hurt they in combat or whatever. You drive them out. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know what they did when? You know, you know their method of driving them out? And actually, this is just, imagine this is their first order, all these young men that have just been pretty much bent into shape. It's okay, this is your first duty, right here. They went and visited them at night, 15 years old. Yeah. All my dad knew was, follow the locker box, what's that mean? I, he had no clue what it meant, other than that's the last thing he remembered. Yeah. They came in with baseball bats, yeah. oh. and they like, they um, took his shoulder out, his knees out. They're like, close to killing him. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, close to killing him at 15. Yeah. So wow. they called his mom and said, hey, I want to get out of here. <laughs> so they gave, him, yeah. they gave him an honorable discharge. Yeah. But he mentioned there's a letter that they had to read, too. It was the Secretary of the Navy, um, because some, a couple guys died in Paris Island yeah. in boot camp because it was so rough, drunken. Time. One it, night, well, six of them drowned. That might have been the letter. Yeah, what, what, it was from that. What, was it from drunk? Sergeant McKeon took him out, and uh, it was late. And they got lost in the swamps and they drowned out there, six of them. So it just upset the whole thing. Well, yeah, we so got we get a if a guy was unclean, we we get a get a brick and sand and sand him down with a brick. You know, I remember that happening. I don't want to hear about it. You know, oh. uh, you actually sand him down with a brick. Yeah. And that was that was from the drill sergeant. Yep. Yeah. Because we'd all suffer. It would make us all suffer. If somebody goofed up, they'd make everybody suffer. And, and you know, you'd take it out on the guy later on, you know. He's the guy who's getting us in trouble. He's making us go through all this crap, you know. The court will piss you off. Exactly. Yeah. But the other thing, it makes sense that, you know, if a guy can't shape up, if he can't shape up, ship him out. He's actually, survival is based on everybody. You're only as good as your weakest guy. Yeah. Well, there were some you wonder... I had a guy in uh, basic school, I know he should never have been an officer, and they made him an officer, and he was an officer, he's very weak, and uh, he went to Vietnam. I get my wars mixed up. It was Korea. He went to Korea and got killed. Uh, they put him in a recon. Why they would they ever put him in a recon company? They should put me in a recon. They put this kid in this recon company, he was killed. And you could see that in training, that he wasn't going to make it. Uh, wow. Half of it is happens. It happens. Yeah. Well, they say there's not a, in Hollywood. There's not a. And it kind of kind of goes with this, as my dad's saying. In Hollywood, there's not a there's not a lack of talent. 
there's only a lack of talent to recognize talent. Yeah. Part of it is about finding the guy that can, you know, they're going to give That's, somebody... That has to be more and more true now, doesn't it? Well, yeah, most people that have positions don't know, you know, the guy's going to... It's not based on talent anymore, it's based on how much Business. money you made on your last film. Yeah. Anything. That's the one thing about art. All these things you have around here, it's the same. If you put some energy into something, you can't lose it. It's like a good book. If it was put into it, you can't extract. It's always there once you open it. It doesn't die. That's the amazing thing about art. And uh, you know, back then it was hard to see that combo, you know, especially in that weird uh, mix. It was such an odd mix to pile those kinds of thoughts into one movie. It still it boggles the mind of most people still. When they put it in the resume that they've been nominated for three Emmys, you think it's a big deal. Which, you know, I don't understand. <laughs> well, yeah, an Emmy is everything. My dad used to watch those things, Oscars and Emmys. He got a real kick out of it. He, well, Oscars was his favorite. He didn't want. He didn't watch the Emmys. He didn't know what was on TV. No. But uh, he used to call it a big Jew fest. They <laughs> say they're just. They were. They were. Yeah, you know, people patting each other on the back. Well, you need some cutaways. You can't just have an hour and a half of me on film. Yeah. <laughs> which are probably boiled down about five, four or five. I think the original Academy Awards were only like hour. They were only like an hour long, oh, you know, yeah. the originals from like, you know, back in the 30s yeah. and 40s when it started out. So it was just like, okay, for this, you know, best award, it wasn't a big presentation with like song and dance numbers and comedians right. and, you know, right. kinds of sort of like filler material. The Super Bowl, look what they've done to that. Yeah. yeah. I wonder what the heck it really was. Millions spend on those commercials. Oh, those commercials, they really gear up for that and they pour tons of money into those commercials. And what if it's a flop? Oh my gosh. Because some of them are a flop. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. I'm sure of it. But they, I mean, they have people that like develop these commercials. I mean, you show them an answer print, they thought it was a work print. What are you doing, John Wayne? Yeah, that's great. Colonel. Carl Mahakian. See, that, that's one guy that could appreciate that. John, John always uh, asked Mark Lawrence to teach him how to act. He admitted he didn't know how to act, you know, and he asked Mark to teach him acting. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, he didn't. He, yeah, I have a friend, uh, we have a friend who worked with uh, John Wayne in a, in a, uh, in a John uh, Ford film. And he said, he said, John Ford, Dylan or Mark Lawrence? Let me get a shot. He's been in every gangster movie there ever was. That's right. Mark Lawrence. Is that he's ninety two? He looks really familiar. Mark Lawrence. Yeah, he was ninety. He was eighty. Uh, that was a couple of years ago. He'd be eighty-eight there. Wow. Oh wow. I don't know what kind of connected us to another friend or something like that. You know? So you guys have been buddies for a long time, huh? You've yeah, been buddies for here. a long time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I helped amazing. him when his wife died. He called me when his wife died. Yeah, he so called he at two o'clock in the morning, and his wife had died of a heart attack. Oh, oh, and Carl, Carl went and did it all. And then when oh. the robbers, the robbers ripped off his place, where they ripped off the place, I, I went in and helped them when they did that. They trashed the whole house. Does he live here in Palm Springs? Yeah. yeah. He thought his wife was eighty-eight, and when she died, when she, when when it came. After she died, they found out she was 92. Yeah. 
She kept she it from right, <laughs> right to the end. She, yeah, she, she took it with her. She was a writer. She was a writer. Yeah. yeah. Wow. You, know this? you said you didn't produce and direct. Well, that doesn't mean anything. Did you save any of those? Yeah, they were censored. They're terrible, most of them. Were they yeah. propaganda tape pieces? Yeah. 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 They I tried to tell the truth. I got in a lot of trouble. Oh, yeah. They wouldn't let you tell the truth. But they're still selling some of them. Oh, I bet. They because he, you can't tell the yeah, truth. They're selling oh, right. <laughs> the truth. Yeah. 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 Wow. You know what?